0: well thanks Jared Uh, if you're expecting Gavin Peacock uh, sorry to disappoint you Uh, you will have to wait till this afternoon and uh, you'll be able to hear Gavin as we change the schedule up a little bit Uh, so uh, I'm gonna be talking to you about revival and uh, I have to admit as we begin that after Ryan's message uh, it's maybe difficult to talk about revival when he really unpacked for us the nature of revival as seen even in preaching. But I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 3. I'm going to actually read through Acts chapter 3 and then down into even the first part of chapter 4. Just just to give us this portion of Scripture, and then I'm going to pray. Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomons. And When Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us, as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified His servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And His name by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers, But what God foretold by the mouth of all prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus." And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and the covenant that God made with your father saying to Abraham, In your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. May God, add his blessing, to the reading of his word, would you pray with me? Almighty God, as we consider your word and as we consider your sovereign power to awaken us, I ask, Lord, that you would open our hearts to you, that you would instruct our minds, that you would make our hearts tender As we are filled with your spirit come now we pray for we ask this in jesus name amen well i've got a confession to make when i designed the the program for this conference uh, i basically was designing it all around my talk Uh, not that my talk would be the pinnacle But basically, I would have everybody else do all of the hard work that my talk required. And that's what you're getting as you've heard Ryan speak of the gospel and conversion last night and then this morning on the topic of preaching. You'll hear Rob Snyder and Josh Carey talk about cross-cultural witness and witnessing locally. And you'll hear Gavin Peacock talk about how to bear public witness even have a testimony in the public square and what's, that, what, what's required for that. And even as Ryan will finish up for us this afternoon and the idea of sending out workers, sending out the gospel, having the gospel go out to the nations. So we're talking about all of these things, but as we talk about evangelism, getting the gospel out, sending the gospel out, sharing the gospel, we run into always a very deadly problem. And it's the, this problem is that we can pursue the right things in the wrong way. We can desire evangelism without the evangel. We can ask for revival and settle for revivalism. Now, revivalism is the deadly ism that creates a counterfeit work of God. As Francis Schaeffer said, the Lord's work in the Lord's way will never lack the Lord's supply. And yet, we're all tempted to rely on ourselves, relying on our supply, relying on the arm of flesh rather than the arm of the Lord. Now, as we kind of start off and I'm talking about revival, the question is, what is revival? Now, some of you know I'm, I'm trying um, in a very poor way to do a Ph.D. I'm working on my studies and I, I'm progressing uh, slower than a snail. Uh, it's going very poorly, but I am doing it. And the guy that I'm studying... I'm doing this project on, this guy named Robert Haldane who went to Geneva, Switzerland in 1816. And he met all of these seminary students who actually didn't read the Bible. And he decided, well, you've got to come to my apartment and let's read the Bible together. So he wasn't even preaching from the pulpit. He said, let's read the Bible together. And so he gathered these students around. They started reading the Bible. And through that, that Bible study, there was a revival and all of, these, all of these guys got saved and many of them became leaders in the French church for a generation. Now they called that revival in Geneva the Reveil, the Reveil in French. And if you, you know, put Reveil into Google Translate, on your computer, because that's what, you know, when my French is bad, that's what I do to try to get away with it. That's what you do when you're cheating as a scholar, I guess. You just use Google Translate. But you put in Reveil in Google Translate, and it comes up as alarm clock. (laughs) And yet, that is what a revival is. It is an alarm clock like the one that went off this morning when you were trying to get here on time. The alarm clock that wakes you from sleep, it is an alarm clock that wakes the dead, that takes them from death to life, or it takes the slumbering, and it causes them to be awakened to God. That is what a revival is. Revival is when God sends An intensification of the ordinary means of grace. And he does it to a group of people all at the same time. Or he does it in a region all at the same time with a number of people. Now, when that happens, the key with revival is it always produces lasting fruit. Ryan gave the testimony of the Al Martin sermon and then Ryan met people who had been there when the lights went out. There was lasting fruit to that work. By contrast, revivalism is the use of human techniques to solicit quick public decisions or just to maintain large crowds, large attendance. Revival is an intense work of God. Revivalism is a clever work of man. The relevance for us, it can't be underestimated because in a conference like this, a conference on evangelism, the topic of revival is almost always associated with something that is not revival, but revivalism. And just, just, just to introduce before I get to my passage... By contrast, just just listen to two descriptions here. This This is an example of revivalism. The encouragement, this is talking about late 1700s, early 1800s, and Charles Finney's ministry. The encouragement of physical responses to preaching, such as falling to the floor, women speaking in worship, meetings carried on through long hours and on successive days, protracted meetings, and above all, inviting individuals to submit to God and to prove it by a humbling action, such as standing up, kneeling down, or coming forward to the anxious bench, all came straight from the procedures that some Methodists have been popularizing for a quarter century. Finney, from the outset of his ministry he sought to make would-be converts visibly distinct in other words it's all about a manipulation to put on a show and have people visibly put this show on it's not really about god it's about what it's doing in changing you. How how different then by contrast is what happened under the revival under the ministry of William Chalmers Burns in Scotland. He talked about how people can come and go in church. And he he said, he said, if I can get the right quote here, he said, "You, You know that many people come from the church the same as they went out. The word does not touch their consciences and they remain under the power of sin and Satan of death and hell. And and it's described. He said, this used to be very much the way among us until lately. But the God of love has visited us and poured out His life-giving Spirit upon the dead souls of men. In some places you might see the solemn sight of hundreds weeping for their sins and seeking to give up their hearts to Jesus. And ah, what a sweet change has taken place on many. The high looks of the proud have been brought down. Dead formalists have become living Christians. Worshippers of mammon have been changed into lovers of God. That's what happens in a true revival. Now, instead of just making a purely historical study, what I wanted to do was look at revival from a biblical point of view. And I think of all the passages, one of, one of them that expresses what's going on is Acts chapter 3. And specifically, I want to then compare times of refreshing, which is a way of describing revival, with revivalism. And so what this will do then is hopefully bring an application for us as we think about our churches and our ministry. So in the book of Acts, you, you know it well, we have a, this brief sketch really of, of the history of the early Christian church. It's supplied for us by Dr. Luke, who is the companion of Paul. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is talked about, His ascension, witnessed by many in chapter 1, even by Jesus' own mother. Jesus had further commissioned the apostles and the subsequent church that that they would be His witnesses. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, but you will receive power, theme from Ryan's message last night, you will receive power, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth so there we have this this commissioning for evangelism but such witness is weak and worthless without the Holy Spirit which is what Ryan just told us that was that was the message we just heard we need the Holy Spirit and so at Pentecost Pentecost that epic, once for all, full outpouring of the Holy Spirit on believers in Christ, those believers in Christ, that was given. So that's described in Acts chapter 2. And this, of course, fulfilled prophecy. It was, it was accompanied by a series of phenomena that validated the apostles' authority. And the phenomenon then served as these signposts that indicate that the old covenant had passed and the new covenant had been initiated. And then we come to Acts chapter 3 that we just read, and it involves then the healing of a guy who would have been a very well-known lame man who had been panhandling at the temple. And uh, we can get lots of panhandlers around here. We have, generally have people trying to camp out on the north side of the church, so we get to know folks like this. And when you see folks, homeless folks around, you can look at them and wonder, can they ever change? Well, in verses 1 to 10, we are told how Peter and John were there, and Peter told the man to simply look at him, and Peter announced, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. So what did Peter have? What could he offer? Well, he said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk and so it was a true miracle. Peter summons this guy to be able to stand, to be able to have this true miracle. There is no natural explanation for it. The man is instantly healed. Now, of course, people were amazed. They're stunned. I mean, we would be the same today. If, if, if there was someone who could instantly heal a homeless man panhandling on the north side of the church we would be we would be astounded but then just like people today people wondered how did peter do it how did he do it because that we're always looking for that right how how do how'd you how'd you do it how'd you get it done what was the technique that you used How did did Peter somehow get this strengthening into this guy's ankles? What was the technique? Was it psychosomatic? Was it magic? Some type of other scientific application? What was Peter's special talent? Well, of course, then Peter addressed them. And he said, men of Israel, verse 12, why do you wonder at this why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk see at that point peter was correcting the age-old assumption that only man's techniques can produce results see and this is the thing this is this is everywhere Peter was confronting the attitude of revivalism. Now, using the term revivalism is anachronistic, but that's what he's confronting. That you have to have man's techniques to produce results. But of course Peter's affirming. It wasn't his Peter's own power? It wasn't Peter's own skill? It wasn't Peter's special spirituality that had the power to work a miracle. Instead, Peter pointed to Christ. And, he, and then he just he preached the gospel to them. And that's what, he, that's what he did. And verses 13 and following, as we as we read, as he basically unpacks the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, and how he glorified Jesus. And then he goes through all of, all of the summary of the trial and crucifixion of Jesus Christ and, and the fact that God raised him from the dead. Peter and John were simply witnesses to these things. They're not originators. They're just testifying that this is true. Now, that's what evangelism is. See, some of you have the mistaken notion that evangelism is about trying to produce a convert. And that's why, if you're like me, you, when you get that mentality, that's why you won't share the gospel. Because you don't think that you have the ability to be clever enough or have a good enough argument... Or be able to answer every objection well enough so that you can produce a convert and make somebody a Christian. But that's not your job. Evangelism is simply, as Peter was doing, is bearing witness. This is the truth. Jesus has come. He has lived. He has died. He has risen from the dead. Ascended into heaven. Is coming again to judge the living and the dead. This is the case. This is what I'm announcing. This is it. You are summoned to believe in it, friend. Stranger. You're summoned to believe. But it is not up to me to make you somehow have this faith. I can't produce it in you. Peter pointed then to the content of the good news and then he showed these folks where peter himself and where they fit into it he said verse 16 and his name that is christ's name by faith in his name that is his name his reputation. All that, is, all that is ascribed to Jesus in his character and his person and his work by faith in his name has made this man strong whom you see and know i mean i couldn't help couldn't help but think of ryan's illustration from harry ironside last night and the you know the 100 converts versus the agnostic can't coming up with any you know, look this is whom you see and know this guy this man has been made strong, and the faith that is through Jesus has given this man perfect health in the presence of you all. So it wasn't Peter's techniques that produced the miracle. God did it in the name of Christ. And so Peter, Peter dispelled any whiff of revivalism. He focused on faith in Jesus Christ. And then he offered these sinners... Something very special. He offered them hope that God would apply the gospel to their hearts too. He said, verse 17, And now, brothers, I know you acted in ignorance, as as did also our rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that is, Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. And then Peter gets to the heart of the matter, which is always the heart of revival. And he said, verse 19, Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. These words are almost unintelligible for us. I mean, we think to repent is to have bad feelings. I'm supposed to feel bad. We think that sins, they can be admitted, but they can't be blotted out. That is what our culture is telling us. If, if cancel culture has taught us anything, it is that if you apro- apologize for breaking a social code, you nevertheless will never be forgiven. There is no forgiveness in cancel culture. But Peter says, when you turn, when you turn from your sin and you turn back to God, your sins will be blotted out to be seen no more. Revivals are always marked by a sense of repentance and forgiveness of sins. And, and I've just got to ask them this morning, do you know that your sins have been blotted out? Or do you think that you are in this process of self-atonement, that you still got to keep feeling bad? God wants you to feel bad. No, God wants you to repent, to turn back to Him, and to know that your sins are blotted out, and to believe it. The issue then becomes our unbelief. We just don't believe that what God says is true. But the intention then of God, the intention that He he has that Peter's going to tell us about, the intention is to give then something very special to the repenter, to the forgiven sinner. And he says, verse 20, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that He may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. Times of refreshing. That, I think, is probably the best short description of revival that I can find because revival is a time of refreshing if Christ is the vine then revival is a refreshing of the branches that would abide and bear fruit if Christ's yoke is easy and his burden is light then that feeling of a you know a second wind and a lightness in bearing his yoke that is a time of refreshing if the good seed lands on good soil, then times of refreshing will make the seed germinate rapidly and fruitfully. You know, of course, I grew up on the farm and, you know, you'd you, you plant the crop. And around Alberta, of course, it's always, always dry, you know, generally in the spring. And the farmers always said, if you, could just, if you could just get just a nice soaking rain, it makes a smart farmer out of everybody. Because <laughs> boom, everything starts growing. It didn't matter how poorly you seeded it. That rain, that time of refreshing, it just made it look beautiful. What this does when you refresh, this time of refreshing it brings joy in what ought to be rejoiced in it it brings sorrow for what ought to be grieved it brings courage to announce what ought what ought not to be hidden and it brings love toward the one who ought to be loved even our lord jesus christ that's what happens Now, being refreshed by Christ is the normal Christian life. It is ordinary life. Nevertheless, when when times of refreshing come, when a a special season of refreshing comes, it's a season of, of intensity, of growth, of insight, of change, And it differs only in degree from the regular life of sanctification. See, that's what we get thinking. Oh, this revival is something entirely different. No, it's the same as what you're doing week in, week out as you pray, as you read the Word, as you seek God's face, as you're filled with the Spirit, as you hear the Word preached, as you pray for the preacher and you're affected by the Word week in, week out, and your life changes and your relationships change and you bear the fruit of the Spirit and all these things are just a regular Christian life only it becomes more intense. More intense. And likely, not just you, but more people all at the same time. It's just just regular life, regular sanctification intensified. As David said in Psalm 110, verse 3, speaking prophetically of Jesus Christ, he said, your people will offer themselves freely in the day of your power. But that's what happens when the Lord shows His power in a time of refreshing. You open up and you give of yourself, not out of guilt, not out of coercion. You give of yourself freely. And I'll tell you what, friends, we need that today. When we repent, or I should say, for the unbeliever, when they repent and are enabled by the Spirit to believe, we can say that in some sense, as Peter does in verse 20, Christ, Christ is sent to them. Christ is sent to them. The Christ who is appointed for them, namely, Jesus. And so just imagine then: revival is an intense season of ordinary growth that is a foretaste of heaven when we will see Jesus face to face. To have a foretaste of that is Christ being sent to us when we repent and believe Christ comes to us by His Spirit and we receive Him. We may be refreshed to do this as a as a believer, and we're we're refreshed with new devotion. But it can also happen for a non-Christian where the dead seed on the dead ground is then made fruitful by the miracle of regeneration as Christ comes to them. This is what happens then, what God does. We see, of course, in Acts 3, that this prospect that there'd be this foretaste of heaven verse 21 the time for restoring all things that's that brought forward and there's a taste of that and we see the response there in chapter four even though they you know the the priests and the captain of the temple and the sadducees they all aligned against this little mini post-pentecost revival Nevertheless. Those who heard the word believed. They believed. So there's this faith, this reliance upon God, trusting in the name of Christ, relying on Him, and the Spirit is working in these people to create this miracle of faith. And so there are these 5,000 miracles that occurred because they believed in a way that they did not before. That's a revival. Now, there's a couple of, maybe just a a few little summary things as far as revivals that I think it's good to be aware of. There generally are, you know, these, these key beliefs that we see here and that we also see in the history of revival, these different doctrines related to revival. And the first of these is there is this In the the belief in the inability of man to believe unaided by God, that's the first thing. There's an inability of man to believe unaided by God. In other words, belief or faith is a gift. Secondly, in a revival, there's always the centrality of the gospel. Just what Ryan was preaching on both last night and this morning. So there has to be faith in the gospel. That's central thirdly there's always this obligation of the gospel summons on all people like like the, this is if the gospel if it is an announcement everybody is obligated to believe it's a summons it's not just an invitation and because the simple fact is unbelief is sin it's not neutrality it's sin And revival, fourthly, is merely the intensification, as I said, of the ordinary means of grace. So preaching, discipleship, church order, it's just an intensity of that. Now, all of us, we can have different attitudes and actions to seek out revival, and it starts with prayer. Personally, you can be praying for a revival. It's kind of what kind of what Ryan was getting at. Praying for the preacher, praying for the preached word that it would have this effect in the church. Preach it, you pray personally, praying at the prayer meeting. I just, you know, how 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 often do you go to the prayer meeting? Right? Lots? Rarely? Don't go? Church doesn't have one. Maybe, maybe you should start one. Maybe you should encourage the starting of one. And and just the idea that you know, if anybody's gone to a prayer meeting, everybody's always too tired to go to a prayer meeting, right? Or I know maybe you're one of those rare people that's energized and excited to go to prayer meeting, and you have all this all this energy to go to the prayer meeting. Almost always, everybody's tired at the end of the day to go out again and go to the prayer meeting. But you know what happens when you're at the prayer meeting? You are energized. Why? Because it is a supernatural energy from the Holy Spirit as He quickens you with the saints. and You look with expectancy to see what God can do. That's then the, the real furnace of which revival begins to burn, is in the prayer meeting. Ryan just went through and talked about gospel preaching well this preaching that has an expectancy that god can produce the miracle of conversion amongst you you know you you bring somebody to church do you actually have an expectancy that god could take the word that was preached and that person can be saved that sunday do you expect that at this conference or this sunday back at your church Or in the coming weeks? Do you have an expectancy that it is possible that God could cause masses of people in your city or your town and they could all come to faith in Christ rapidly, intensely so that you would not have space for them? See, the issue is not God's ability. The issue is far more whether or not we actually believe He's able to do that. And to be honest, we just don't. We actually have the sin of unbelief. We don't think he's able to do that. But revival is not just in the big meeting. As I pointed out with Robert Haldane, you can have a home Bible study, and people get saved, and it can be the catalyst. Many, many of the revivals through history started with a, a group of two or three praying together. Uh, just a couple of folks praying and then and then later on all of a sudden oh well where'd all these converts come from? Yeah well the you know those two two little old ladies have been praying for conversions for about ten years. You know it's a revive, you know it's kinda like the overnight success it was ten years in the making. Right? And that's that's that kind of prayer. All of you parents parenting your children. Do you parent them with an expectancy as you share the gospel with them? that God is able to convert them. You don't have to then shoehorn them into false conversions, but you can expect that real faith can be implanted in them, and you can pray to that end. In all of this, we need to resist our desire to walk by sight and instead walk by faith, and that's what happened. We see in Acts 4 when these folks They believed. There was opposition, but they heard the word and believed. Now, I'm going to just switch now and just talk a little bit in application to the problem of revivalism, this deadly ism. Revivalism has distorted the meaning of revival for most people. So, uh, if you go on uh, the old Instagram, the Gram uh, you go on Eventbrite or you go on other social media, you'll find one of those really fancy desktop publishing. Michael's laughing at me because he knows where I'm going with this. Uh, you'll find one of these really flashy advertisements. It, they're always in purple and they always have gold lettering. And, and they advertise, they say, on a special night with special evangelists and special music on this night, we're going to have a revival. But that's not a revival. That's revivalism. That's a distorted idea of revival. You can't say we're going to have a revival on Friday night because revival is a sovereign work of God. The deadly ism that counterfeits revival is any attempt to use man-made methods or techniques to try to then produce results whether the results are a bigger attendance or quote-unquote decisions for Christ or giving financially, whatever it is. The method of this revivalism is then to use methods that we can control in order to produce guaranteed results. Contrary to what Peter said, no, it is using my power and my piety to produce these things. Another biblical picture of this is, is the one that Jeremiah uses when he talks about using a water tank or, or what's called a cistern. Why would you use a water tank or a cistern to hold water? Well, you do it because you want to control the amount of water that you have for the future. But God told the revivalists in, Jer- in Jerusalem in Jeremiah 2, verse 13, He said, Be appalled, O heavens, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed for themselves cisterns for themselves. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. Revivalism is the deadly ism which can hold no water. It is a broken cistern. And it forsakes God as the source of spiritual life. The great contrast between revival and revivalism was put forward by Ian Murray in 94. He had a book, Revival and Revivalism, The Making and Marring of American Evangelicalism evangelicalism from 1750 to 1858, I mean, it just sounds like the most boring academic history book ever. But what Murray did was he showed that there was a difference between true revivals when God works sovereignly and what happened then after that with men like Charles Finney who attempted to achieve the same results by applying the techniques of salesmanship and even techniques of manipulation Now, sadly, there are these examples. These examples, and I won't go through too many of them, but I think it's good for us to be aware of these examples of revivalism. Now, Ryan kept referencing preachers and sneakers. I thought he was going to take my whole illustration away, and he basically did, but that's okay. So there's an Instagram account called Preachers and Sneakers, and it shows all of these pastors wearing these five hundred, seven hundred, thousand dollars dollars sneakers up on stage. And it is to show how successful and how wealthy and how prosperous these preachers are. And of course, if you look at them and you listen to their message, you can be prosperous too. Preachers and sneakers. It's pure revivalism. It's trying to get people attracted to the preacher in order then to keep the crowd, in order for them to give money, in order for them to listen to that message, and hopefully then they would seek that kind of prosperity too. It's all revivalism. It's easy to point out the preachers and sneakers because most of the guys are real bad false teachers. But what I'm mostly concerned about is that guys that... Ryan and I would know, guys of that era, guys who would say maybe they're a Calvinist, maybe they're a complementarian, maybe they're some other conservative theological position, yet they're starting to import these tricks and techniques into their ministry. So there's one guy I saw just a couple of weeks ago. He did a TikTok dance with glow sticks in the pulpit. And this is a guy who has a a discipleship ministry. Now, why would he do a TikTok dance? Why why would any grown man do a TikTok dance? Like, even, even in the privacy of his own bedroom, like, why would you do it? To do it up in front of the church? But why would he do it? Because just for that very reason it gets a laugh it's entertaining to the crowd it keeps everybody's attention with this man-made silliness and we know there's there's all of this the smoke and light show you know putting on this this whole stage performance that has its own intensity very entertaining it is a spectacle but it is not the lord's way The celebrity pastor thing, as Ryan pointed out, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. It's old. It's been around for a long time, but it's still here. When you have people attaching themselves to a celebrity figure, they're trying to have some of the afterglow of that celebrity stuff rub off on them. Revivalism is also expressed in a sort of contentless Christianity. So a guy like Andy Stanley just just here in the last few days, promoting homosexuality and dismissing parts of the Bible as what he calls clobber texts because they condemn homosexuality. Well, he's going to dismiss them, and he's going to empty his Christianity of all content in order to keep the crowd, in order to keep his influence. That's revivalism. It's false. You see, an unwillingness to deny anyone anything is a mark of revivalism. And yet Jesus, Jesus, he said, the true Christ, he said, whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Matthew 10.33. And and the the trouble then with this revivalism is it's so embedded even in our evangelicalism. Because one of the main examples of revivalism is, aimed to imitate all these big gatherings that were produced by true revival, the imitation became known as crusade evangelism. And it, that's where you get, oh yeah, you know, we're going to have a revival next week, a series of meetings. D.L. Moody continued with the methods that Charles Finney developed, and even, even Billy Graham took the revivalism of crusades to a new level. Now, don't get me wrong. Were all all of it bad? Could could there be good content in these evangelistic meetings? Yes, of course. But when they have these techniques in these meetings, it it, it made for a deadly flaw. And I've met many people over the years. Now, Ryan and I commiserate about how old we are and how long we've known each other, but... He would know the same, and I've met many people over the years who made emotional decisions for Christ in a compelling moment, and yet they never repented, they never truly believed, and they were never truly saved. But the tragedy of it is that they thought they were. They thought they're a Christian. They think they're going to heaven. But the deadly ism of revivalism has sent many people to hell with a lie in their right hand, falsely assured, comforted by a false understanding of the gospel and of conversion. And that's what's so deadly. As David Wells said in his book, No Place for Truth, regarding revivalism, it is not truth that is wanted, but technique. And that's the sad thing. But I close, I don't want to close on the negative note of revivalism. We saw this post-Pentecost revival in Acts 3 and 4, and I just want to offer what I would suggest is the greatest revival prayer in the Bible. I invite you to turn over to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. And you've got to see this. Ephesians chapter 3. Beginning in verse verse 14. So we go from Peter to Paul. Paul says, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you. That's Ryan coming from the south, that's y'all. That's you all, you plural. That you, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit. Where? Where? Not, not, Not in the political realm, not in the financial realm, not even physically strong although those things can all be good. Where is this strengthening with power through His Spirit? Where is it residing? Where is it going? It is in your inner being, the inner man. That's where it is, and this is where revival is needed, a strengthening in the inner being, and then in one life, and then in another, and then in another, and then in another, and then in many. When there is this strengthening in the inner being, this is then a true awakening. And how is this so? Of course, it is the Father doing the strengthening of us with power through His Spirit. And that is then what a time of refreshing is like. And then we read, in verse 17 as peter promised so that and this is it this is for you so that christ may dwell dwell remain take up residence camp out that christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength To comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Do you see that revival is the intensification of what you are already knowing and experiencing as a believer? you are progressing in the knowledge of the fullness of god but this is why knowing the fullness of god and being strengthened in the inner being ought to be our pursuit and if god blesses us with an intense season of strengthening and fullness of love toward god then we'll praise him all the more and if that happens we won't need weak techniques we won't need the schemes of men to do God's work. God will do the work. And we will know it is unmistakably His work. His way. And we will confess then with Paul, verse 20, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Holy Father, come and apply this to us. By your Spirit, strengthen us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.